Hey listeners, this is Brian Moriarty, co-host of both Nerds on Film and Nerds on History. If you like the History Podcast, you know, do us a favor. We've got another great podcast on our channel called Nerds on Film. If you like listening to everyday people just talk to no end about films and film issues from both fandom and the film industry, check us out, please. You can go to nerdonomy.com to the podcast page and subscribe to us straight from there. Give us a listen. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Check, check, check one. Hey, Brian. Yeah? Did you know that Nostradamus actually predicted the fall of Hostess? No, really? Yeah, really. Let me read an excerpt from Nostradamus. When the makers of wondrous bread crumble, the twin keys will unlock the sorrow that shall befall the heads of stone. Nostradamus. Whoa. Are you serious? No. Three times! Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, this is awesome. This past week, we've gotten so much response from our listeners. I'm excited. I'm really excited. We've gotten both responses off of Facebook and through our fan mails. You got two fan mails, right, in the past week? I'd like to say the collective we got two fan mails. But yes, they were they came into my inbox. We had a wonderful email from Kirsten. Uh, who just gave us such great praise and went out there and just gave us some really, really positive feedback and a lot of really wonderful things to say in response to our episode all about mummification. She found it very interesting. And uh, I wanted to mention her, and I also wanted to mention her partner, Hayden, who has a really fascinating website. It's called The Art of Mourning. And I checked it out. I encourage you listeners to do so as well. It's a very interesting take on the idea of mourning and how we all kind of sympathize with those who have lost somebody and there's a lot of really incredible almost kind of mourning gifts if you will that are that are meant to just kind of convey that sympathy and that solace that they have for someone's passing and it's interesting because they have a whole other subsection of the website that talks about the symbolism that's involved with a lot of the pieces uh that are being produced and there's things like lockets and bracelets and things of that such to to keep someone who's been close to you still close to you and i think it's it's pretty neat and i wanted to mention it and again, thank Kirsten for her really fantastic suggestions and great insight in her email that she sent. Look forward to future episodes. We've got a lot more to come, and uh, we're going to see if we can work in some of her suggestions. So listeners, get ready. Also, a great email from uh, Chad, who, as far as I know, is our only listener in Germany. I don't know if there's more listeners in Germany. Go ahead and give us a shout out. But uh, he also gave us a great episode. He had a lot of nice things to say about our Indies Not a Superhero episode you know, about the kind of interlinking mythologies that superheroes kind of have and how they've kind of begun to progress and evolve and change over time. But they've always kind of told the same story. They've all kind of been based off of a lot of the same archetypes. Uh, so I found that really great. And thank you again, Chad, for, for sending your feedback. I agree. Thank you so much. We also got a message today by Victoria Townsend, who can shed some light on what is it like living in the District of Columbia based off of our Hail to the Nerds episode. So I'd like to read her message out, if that's okay. Please do. Thought I'd give a little more info on D.C. voting and representation. I'm a D.C. suburbs resident in both Virginia and Maryland throughout my life, so I've heard a lot about this issue. Even though D.C. voters now have representation in the Electoral College, they are still less represented than any other resident of the United States outside of the territories. D.C. residents have no representative in the Senate, Even though they have a higher population than the state of Wyoming, they only have one representative in the House. To make things even better, their House representative can only vote in committee and does not have voting privileges on the floor, which means they can only pass a bill to the floor that can't actually vote on the bill itself. This difference in rights is the reason that D.C. license plate bears the quote, no taxation without representation, and the debate about possible statehood keeps reoccurring. Thought you might find some of this interesting. I absolutely love the podcast. I hope to be able to listen to you guys for a long time. Well, Victoria, thank you for sharing your insight into uh, what it's really like to live in that part of the country, in that very weird crack in the system where you are a U.S. citizen, you can elect the president, but you you don't have a representative making decisions for you as far as the law is concerned. Yeah. And, you know, we intend to be around for a very long time. Uh, We have no intention of stopping this. We're having some really, really great conversations every week. And beyond that, we're having some great conversations via Facebook and our email. And please, folks, we encourage you, go on Facebook, like us on Facebook, and join in the conversation. Or if you want, shoot us a quick email. We're always happy to reply to them. 
And uh, we're always happy to give you a shout out on the show and share your insights. Definitely. And I'll say, though, the fan base goes beyond just our listeners. There's also those who participate in our podcast. We're also very happy to do so. And our sister podcast, Nerds on Film, which if you folks who are listening haven't had a chance to give it a listen yet, one of the greatest episodes to try it with, I think, is our two-parter that we did, our Fusion episode, our Thanksgiving episode, where we feature both Sarah Ashley and David McGuire, the co-hosts of Nerds on Film, in Nerds on History, in a special two-part. So listen to ours first, then listen to Nerds on Film. And it was so fantastic because we had this really great camaraderie that kind of came together, made an amazing podcast, and we thought this week... Why not invite another key and important element back to the show, someone who we've already been flirting around with the idea for this topic for a little while. Now she's been very enthusiastic, very excited about it, and wanted to come and put her knowledge to it. And so I would like to formally introduce, once again, Sarah Ashley to the show. What up? I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And this is really the second time the three of us have had our own little discussion because I keep going back to Nerds on Film episode five where we talked about Star Trek. Yeah, when Eric came in and sat in in David's place because David unfortunately was sick. So Eric came in and shared all of his knowledge about Star Trek. So in case any of you guys didn't know, this guy's a huge Trekkie and it's fantastic. Trekkie, Whovian, and then what do we call someone who's in the Galactica? Galacticite? (laughs) <laughs> we, are, we are of Galactica. Of Galactica. Of, of Galactica. We are of Galactica. So say we all. <laughs> so say we all. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm glad to be back on uh, on Nerds on History. This will be fun. And we have definitely earned the title of nerd, I think, at this point. We've all oh, shown yeah. our colors. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting because when we do our research and we refer to our material for the show, we're doing it on iPads and we're doing it on our iPhones. Well, I'm doing mine on my Kindle Fire. (laughs) Your Kindle Fire. Okay. On our devices. On our devices. But we look at these devices and we're thinking, this is just so stunning. We are living in a point in time where we are closest to the way we ever thought of the future being now than we've ever been in history. That's hyperbole, but I do really truly believe that's the case. So why not spend an episode in talking about how we've thought the future would be like throughout history? Yeah, as they say, and it's kind of cliche, but the future is now. And this is something that we're always innovating. We're always coming up with something new, or so we think. A lot of these things that we're innovating and coming up with have already been conceptualized before. Mm -hmm. There are thoughts and ideas that have passed down to us that now, either due to the technology existing that allows for these things to be made the way that we intended them to be, that we wanted them to be, exists, or perhaps it simply lay dormant and nobody really realized the potential for it until somebody else was brave enough to say, you know what? This was an idea. I think I've got something that'll make it work. Let's go out on a limb here and give it a try. And I think that back in 2010, when the iPad kind of came on the market, it wasn't the first tablet on the market, but it was the first one that really connected with people and kind of gave you what you wanted and what you kind of saw, at least what I saw in movies when I was growing up, right? Here I was a kid. I wanted something that wasn't my computer because I had my computer. I could go to my computer and use it like that. I wanted something that was different, something futuristic, something really cool, and something that would kind of cater to me and change with me. And that's kind of what the iPad did for me. And it made me think immediately back to Star Trek. You see, me too. Totally. I remember when I was learning about the iPhone and watching the video tutorial on how the thing works, I had that moment. I was like, this is out of Star Trek. This lo- <laughs> this looks like the comlink. <laughs> You know? It's a tricorder it's a and tricorder. a communicator in one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I kept thinking all the way back to all the movies where they had the big, you know, surface touchscreen devices where they can type and they have stuff coming up and it's animated. And I'm like, this is so mind blowing. We're never going to have this for like another hundred years, and yet we're holding it in our hands right now. Yeah. I still want my hoverboard though. I haven't gotten my hoverboard yet. <laughs> They've got two years. Okay. That's the thing that I've been holding out for since I was a kid. And those of you, of course. Chances are you are familiar, but if you aren't, Back to the Future Back Part Two. Back to the two. Future. Back to the Future. What an amazing series! And I think we'll we'll, we'll dive into that in more detail. We have to. We Absolutely. totally have to. But the hoverboard, I I too have been waiting for it. And I don't know how many <laughs> dreams I had as a kid <laughs> that involved that freaking hoverboard. Right? Did they ever involve you going over like a puddle of water and it would stop working? <laughs> <laughs> they can't go on water. <laughs> that that was my that was my awkward nightmare. <laughs> I'm on the hoverboard, all of a sudden I'm over water and I'm not wearing any clothes. Oh, no. <laughs> and everyone's looking at me. Oh, back in the day when eighty eight miles per hour was fast enough to travel through time. <laughs> <laughs> now it kinda gets you a speeding ticket. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you get caught. Well, yeah. if you also happen to have a device that can generate one point twenty one gigawatts. Yeah. 
Gigga Watts. It's it's Giga, not Jigga. He says Jigga in the movies. So. I know he says Jigga, but it's Giga. I know. Let him have his Jigga Watts, okay? It's Doc Brown, dude. Yeah. Yeah, he does everything a little different. Maybe he invented the gigawatt. Yeah, maybe we're all mispronouncing I'm it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking of that song from the late 90s, Jigawatt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. So that's why I don't say gigawatt. I say gigawatt. Right. <laughs> okay, I, I will say this. We, we're kind of starting out talking about a little bit future technology, but I almost kind of want to talk about Leonardo da Vinci in the Renaissance in a period where people were, were starting to really think outside the box and we're starting to dream and starting to think what the future could be like and what kind of things, what kind of innovations would be needed to make life simpler and easier. And it really astonishes me because I have been a long time admirer of Leonardo da Vinci. Truly um, a, an amazing individual. I mean, this is a point in time when there was no such thing as the whole jack of all trades is master of none. Right. And I'm quoting my history teacher when I say that. Mr. Lindahl, if you're out there. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I love We both Lindahl. had Lindahl in college, didn't we? Yeah. Jim Lindahl, man. Awesome guy. You know, it was interesting because at that point in time, you were not just an artist. You were considered an artist engineer. You had to know everything about it to construct it. And for many, you belong to a very strict caste system. You know, you, you had a, a role, and that was your job in that society and that culture. And the chances were your child would be raised and would learn the trade from the father and pass it on to the son. And that was simply the way that things were. And now here was somebody like Leonardo who was willing to say, I can be an amazing painter, but I can also be an engineer. I can explore math to its greatest ability. I can be a writer. I can be a poet. I can be a philosopher. I can essentially be anything that I choose to be. And therefore, I choose to be. And he chose to be everything, pretty everything. much. Yeah, exactly. I think with the exception of becoming a priest, uh, that was pretty much the only thing that he didn't do. And he was, in many ways, a very spiritual, deeply spiritual individual. And much of what his spirituality yeah. went into his creativity, went into a lot of his curiosity of the world around I him. I couldn't help but think of the... Uh, he didn't. He never did sculpture, but there's that... No, he did. He did. Oh, was it the sculpture of the half... Angel Half Demon, I'm thinking of, that was his, or was that somebody else's? I think that was somebody else's. But I know that as as an artisan, I mean, or as, a, as an artist, I should say, he definitely was, dabbled in it all. Yeah. Yeah, as you would expect. But, but here was a man who was willing to take to the skies, you know, who used his imagination to create a flying machine. And a flying machine that arguably never flew, as far mm -hmm. as we know. But, unless you believe Star Trek Voyager... And yes, I had to take it there. Well, I mean, <laughs> holographic not... Leonardo da Vinci was actually pretty badass because it was actually Sala from Indiana Jones. Yes. And I kept thinking about that the entire time and from Sliders, of course, as well. Oh, my God. I just nerded I out right Sala, now. I keep thinking of, welcome, my friends, because <laughs> that's whatever you'd always mm -hmm. do with the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. <laughs> welcome to Venice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad dates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bad dates. Um, well, actually, not entirely true that his flying machine never flew because a couple years ago, someone got the machine or a, a variation of the machine to work purely by human propulsion to get it in the air. Right. The problem is there's so much stamina into flapping yeah. that gets you to, that you need something to sustain you once you're up there. And that mm -hmm. that's the key word, right? The key word is sustained flight. Yes. And that's the tricky part. Yeah, so they did it with the combination of the flapping to get you in the air, then then the engine cook kicked in. But what a lot of folks don't realize is, yes, he had this apparatus that was very much designed around the movements of a bird, right? It was meant to to emulate the bird and thus emulate flight. But he came so close to inventing a glider because he also conceptualized and envisioned the very first parachute. Mm -hmm. Right. He did. So his parachute, which was a bit awkward. It was, it, it was, it was like pyramidal, wasn't it? Yeah. It was It was a bit of a... Of it, was, a it was trapezoidal, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And he assumed that the person would glide down to safety, yet he never really combined the two concepts and ideas together that one could take to the sky and could keep going by the sake of gliding down and this kind of sustained falling, which yeah. is really what flight is, is very slow falling, uh, is really the, the key element that would have made right. it work. Yeah, well, it wasn't until Bernoulli, right, that we were able to, he were able to come up with the laws of what actually caused flight to take place. Right, govern the laws of, of flight, of uh, lift. Right, exactly. really allowed it for, for flight to happen. Exactly. I will say, while we always kind of assume and kind of group Leonardo into the role of a pacifist, which for the vast majority of the time he really was, I mean, the vast majority of what we know about him, he was a pretty serene individual despite his temperament that would flare up from time to time. But he also concocted some rather interesting weapons of war, uh, at least in his mind. The 33-barreled 
organ, which would eventually give birth to kind of the Gatling gun. Oh, wow. Was this incredible idea that he had invented where he had 11 muskets mounted on a rack and then 11 more on a rack behind it and 11 more on another rack. And the concept was the first 11 would shoot and fire. You would then pull a crank and they would move to the bottom position where they would cool. The next prepared 11 would shoot and then you would crank again. And the ones that had cooled now were ready to be reloaded. Oh, okay. So you would then reload while the next 11 were shooting. You mm-hmm. had to do so very, very quickly because it was the, you know, simple ball and musket apparatus at the time, right? They didn't have the breech loader until much, much later. like a whole team of people doing it. It would still be much faster <laughs> than, uh, you know, loading a cannon. Yeah, absolutely. Which was not a mobile weapon for war at the time, which was usually just simply kept in a stationary position as a defensive weapon than a weapon of offense. You mean you couldn't just haul that thing around? What the hell, lazy bastards? <laughs> Damn lazy people back in the 14th century. Um, But instead, you now have this idea of this really offensive, very frightening weapon, in addition to this gigantic crossbow that he had designed. And it was meant to be more a weapon of intimidation than actually a a functional weapon. (laughs) You're like, hey, they got crossbows. Mm -hmm. Oh, we have a crossbow. It's (laughs) huge. Bring out a hard crossbow. Holy shit. (laughs) Run away. (laughs) Based on his sketches, we believe it was 20 seven yards across what so it was a massive crossbow that's ridiculous people (laughs) (laughs) okay yes you put this pointed object on your head yes you squeeze the hat on now now, now lay face down all right ready now (laughs) ciao Um, from, from the sketches, we believe it was meant to fire large stones, rocks, or even barrels of hot oil that would explode and set fire <laughs> to things. Yes. Um, wow. And here's from a person who generally is considered to be somewhat a pacifist, someone mm-hmm. who was opposed to war. Yeah. So no big surprise, though, that he invents these horribly intimidating weapons, that if you were to see this enormous, massive crossbow on the battlefield before you, yeah. in addition to these apparatus with 11 muskets attached to it, I, I'm sorry. I would I would simply run away because I would be terrified run of, uh, of the He also had a prototype uh, or a model. He never actually built it for a horseless carriage, which was meant for warfare so that you would not have to worry about horses getting scared. Yes. Yes, so, yes, yes. He also developed the armored car. Right. Which was also a terrifying, intimidating weapon of war. But it's very interesting because the design for this, which if you look at it, it kind of looks like a... You know when you have a, a, a tropical drink and you have the little parasol? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the umbrella. Uh, the little umbrellas, right. Mm-hmm. It kind of looks like you had just cut the toothpick off of that, covered that with like iron, <laughs> and then attached cannons to it. And of course it was much larger. Oh my and gosh. So, and he came up with this concept and it was essentially the first tank. Oh wow. It was the birth of the tank. But Arguably, there's some evidence to say that the ancient Greeks had a boxed item that they would use by foot power that would protect them from... True, which could be considered an armored vehicle in a sense, but a vehicle implies that it is motorized beyond the power of... Uses locomotion of some kind. Right, exactly. To move it, yeah. And so it it was run by wheels, a series of wheels that allowed it to kind of move and change in in position, but it didn't allow for forward motion. Hmm. The way that he had designed it, at least from the blueprints, shows a series of cranks that would crank the wheels, but they were all going in opposite directions. So the apparatus was capable of, you know, shimming left and shimming right, but it didn't really move forward. Oh. And some people have speculated that it was actually Leonardo who designed it with an intentional flaw. So while it was still very impressive and was sure to gain him some praise from his benefactor and most likely a, a decent amount money. Of, of money, it would never actually be designed for warfare. Interesting. Of course, this is all, you know. That's a lot of speculation. Exactly. But based on what we know about Leonardo as a man, I'm going to say it's, uh, it's quite plausible. Yeah. One one last thing that I'll say about Leonardo, which, again, all the many different hats that he wore, he was so very intent on understanding what made the human body work, to the point where he would perform many times his own autopsies. Which was highly controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. Very, very controversial, and kind of gained him a reputation as being a bit of a ghoul. But he did so purely for medical knowledge, just so he could understand the way that the human body, the most complex machine on the planet, works. Uh, And in doing so, he had come up with this concept of a robotic knight. He wanted to remove the suffering and pain of warfare. 
He didn't want people to have to die. He felt it would be more appropriate if we could simply construct our warriors to go out and fight our wars for us, then the casualties would simply start to drop away. And so he, he came up with this idea of some sort of, if you will, android. Okay? Oh my god. Android's my probably the wrong right term. <laughs> well, android's probably the wrong term because that implies that it has some sort of human element to it, right? Yeah. Some, some sort of human makeup yeah. to it. But a robot, A right? drone, essentially. Yeah, a robotic knight capable of going out and, and fighting. And there's even suggestions that he may have gotten close to building something that was capable of perhaps moving an arm or actually standing and sitting, probably not an entire thing, most likely but run nothing by... With a, nothing with a central unit that could control its own movement. No, exactly. And that was yeah. obviously a dream that he would have and something that he would hope perhaps future generations yeah. would be able mm -hmm. to achieve. Had he lived in the age of the computer electronics, though? Yeah, well, look at us now. NASA has developed you know, robots to go ahead and perform actions in outer space, and certainly mm -hmm. it's far cry yeah. from warfare, and we don't need any more weapons, you know, in my opinion. You're bringing this up, and I immediately think of the Osimo robot that's at Tomorrowland, at Disneyland. Uh, Tomorrowland, we'll have to get to it a little bit later, because that's the, like a qu the quintessential, right, of our perception right, of the future. Right. But this robot can walk, run, climb stairs, carry things mm -hmm. entirely on its own. It's like it's... Is that the robot that was developed by Honda? It is. Yeah. Honda Osimo. Yeah. yeah. Millions of dollars. It's about four feet tall. No, no, maybe a little bit shorter. But he's basically a boy. He's programmed to sound and ask questions like a boy does, but he's like this aide that is meant, that is designed for someone who needs help around the house. I, I'm, I'm going to call up a movie here, Bicentennial Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, when you were saying that, when you said boy, I was thinking AI. Yeah. Artificial oh. intelligence, the really screwed up modern Pinocchio, which was just <laughs> that left me scarred. I think it was, yeah. it was just creepy. It was, it was really, it was really yeah. unsettling movie. But Bicentennial Man was wonderful. Robin Williams gave a very good performance, and I liked it. Made my whole family cry. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but it was good. I liked it. I, I liked it because it took the concept and idea of okay, yes, we're getting very, very close to this, mm -hmm. right? To to making mechanical people, mm -hmm. people that are capable of, uh, or these robots that are capable of emulating much of what we are as human beings. What happens when they move beyond that? Yeah. What happens when they actually start to become human beings? And that's exactly what Bicentennial Man they, explored. Yeah, when they want to be human. Yeah, and he made it possible. Yeah, He created further inventions and further innovation in his own design and started replacing all of his mechanical components with, you know, biological synthetic components. And by the time that he dies, mm -hmm. he is essentially a human. A human. human. It really makes you think, because now we're thinking a little bit into the future, right? I feel like this is probably going to happen a lot during the episode. Mm -hmm. We're going to start really far back. We're going to come up and then we're going to start projecting yeah. to the future. How far off is that? And is that something that is kind of unsettling? Is that well, something that worries people? There's a lot of philosophical implications in that. Because you're asking, can you create a, a, an essence? Can you create a consciousness? And if that's the case, what are is, the what is it of that, something bigger Yeah, what not? is it that makes us human? Yeah, it's and really... Go ahead. It's very, very deep. Very, and, very deep. And I find it really interesting that movies that do have perceptions of the future, fiction, literature, um, just art in general, even though in, in technology as it brings it up, but you know, art imitates life. I feel like a lot of the stuff, we look into the future, but ultimately we look back to our own essential roots. We look at our, you know, beings that are being created now, these, these robotic entities that are being created. And so far there's still, um, oh God, I'm trying to think, the uncanny valley. That, that's the that's the term, I believe. Um, when you are able to look at something that's artificially created, like uh, a robot or um, graphics, um, CGI graphics, no matter how realistic you can make it, it still cannot entirely look human. Right, because, because you won't reject it. Well, no, there's certain, um, we have our own facial movements, um, certain musculature that just, it's so complicated it can't be replicated. So right. you can look at a CGI face that's talking to you and you can still recognize it as being CGI even though it looks so damn real. Yeah, hmm. it looks like it's 90% there, but, yeah, but yeah. there's that last 10%. So once they break that and then they break that sort of visual barrier, What's going to happen then <laughs> is kind of like a really huge. That's huge. Yeah, there's yeah. well because there is being an actor. There is that whole argument. Well, will the actor still survive when you can create an entire personality, an entire performance in a computer, and you can also create a voice which sounds very, very human. And once we break the barrier, being able to make a voice that's entirely human sounding, what is there for the actor to do at that well, point? Well, 
My, my father likes to make this argument. As we talked about in the last episode, his stories yeah. on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. The this kabuki, is, yes. <laughs> this is always one of them where he starts talking about the replacement of actors and that they will all be completely computer generated. And he says this will happen by the time that he dies. He always says this, that that's, that's going to be the reality, that's going to be the future of it, and then these will be our actors. And I always argue with him because, yes, we can emulate life, we can emulate these actors, but we can't emulate their experiences that they had that shape the performances they give. We cannot emulate the soul, the passion, the feeling that goes behind these performances. At that point, we're still just modeling it on those actual performances. Mm-hmm. We would have to create an artificial intelligence, something that was capable of feeling before that will ever, in my opinion, really happen. Yeah, Because and at that point, we're just modeling on, on us. So when they do invent Data's emotion chip, <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to drop a Star Trek bomb there. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> it's the whole idea of robotics and the idea of really of not just robotics because we're talking about really an android, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Something that is something that is like a human being. Yeah. Um, that also is a very subjective term because C-3PO is an android. He has very human, human qualities. Cyborg relations. Like human <laughs> cyborg relations. Yes, exactly. And he isn't looking human, but he has human phenotypes that they've built into his body, mm-hmm. and he has personality traits that are very human, but he's not fully human. Right. Right. So there is that constant philosophy. And there's, of course, there's the negative one, the dystopian philosophy that if we create intelligent life, are they going to go and destroy and us. destroy us in return? Yeah. Um, we have a we have a coworker who jokingly says that if the robot apocalypse comes, he will one hundred percent side with the robots. <laughs> well, yeah, everybody like I know a lot of people on the internet are always I for one will welcome the robot overlords. <laughs> and actually, they're Steven Steven Spielberg. No, I don't know. Somebody's making. I think it's, it might be Spielberg. Somebody's making a movie called Robocalypse, and and <laughs> Anne Hathaway is going to star in it. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. To me, and you can get other gems like that on Nerds on Film. <laughs> <laughs> the shameless plug of the hour is brought to you by Sarah Ashley. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I would say that science fiction in particular obviously has explored this oh, topic. absolutely. To death. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so, though, because if you think about it, if you created an artificial intelligence, you're creating something that is... Yes, capable of feeling and having emotion and having a personality, but also capable of having the mind of a computer mm-hmm. and thus being able to put together thoughts and ideas at Faster. such a great speed yeah. that it sees biological life as being inferior at that point, right? And technically it would be. It would be inferior in that sense. But it also has none of the emotions and none of the emotional bonds to to care about it enough to want to keep it around right but it has enough emotion to realize that it could very well either a be a threat or b just be insignificant enough to not care for it and therefore robo apocalypse or whatever it's called roboculypse oh you know it's interesting we keep talking about this and i just i'm automatically thinking about blade runner the movie but it was um based on a book or a short story by philip k dick um called do androids dream of electric sheep that whole concept is about a guy who needs to go hunt down androids who need to be terminated, essentially. And all the androids in this dystopian future all have an expiration date and they don't have any empathetic sense. So it definitely is is asking the what's the difference between humans and androids and um, things that we create to look and sound and act just like us, but they still don't have that sense of empathy. Philip K. Dick wrote the story, I believe, in 1968, 1967. And um, originally, it, it the story itself took place in uh, 1993, I want to say. <laughs> yeah. And of course, when Blade Runner brought it to the big screen and gave mm-hmm. us a, a real visual element to attach to it, mm-hmm. what do we see? We see, you know, flying cars and yeah. we see yeah. these giant cities and we see. Well, and it was, it w- had nuclear fallout. Right. So it was it was essentially a decimated wasteland. But we're also yeah. talking about the movie that was made around the time of the Cold War. Yes, and there was a lot of there was a big perception that we were on the brink of a nuclear disaster. Mm-hmm. Because we were. Yeah. You know, the possibility of it happening was very well, real. The, and the story was written still in in the the midst of the Cold War. So it was definitely reflective of the time. And a lot of the science fiction from that time, um, Ray Bradbury is the same thing. He wrote Martian Chronicles, which was all set in nineteen ninety nine through 2003 and that whole thing was all about exploring space and and leaving 
leaving the planet because, you know, we're it's going to hell in a handbasket. So everybody was trying to leave. Um, I, I find dystopia. It's absolutely fascinating just because it's like, wow, y'all really thought we were going to screw up the planet, didn't you? <laughs> and in a very short amount of time. In a very short amount of time. Um, George Orwell, 1984, probably one of the most popular ones because yeah. um, we all read it in school. Same thing with Brave New World. Um, but Brave New World, I think, takes a very different take on yeah. that, mostly because it has less to do with robots and yada yada and more to do with drugs and and mind control. Same thing with 1984 is also more about big government mind control, but I still think they're all pretty rooted in the politics of the time. Absolutely. They're all very much cautionary tales Mm -hmm. of what could happen if we don't get on track here and realize what's going on. And and they were meant to educate as well as entertain uh, and to, you know, show a real possibility, a real future without hopefully having to reach that future and learn from the mistake itself. Right. And that's where the power of those stories come from. And I feel like that in many ways is why they translate so well to screen. Yes. Because this is so important. The message is so important. And now we have something that we can, me as a being a very visual person, be able to see that Mm -hmm. and be able to really feel moved and and motivated by it on on a somewhat unrelated topic. And I don't mean to to derail it because it's, it's, going so good um i will say that there's this big theme through a lot of those movies and not just the dystopian futures right but also some of the more positive ones like in um fifth element for example which is one of my favorite yes. movies i love, love that element. movie multi-pass multi-pass <laughs> yeah chicken mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but these these massive super cities that are built atop of one another mm-hmm. that are these layers upon layers upon yeah. layers and you have this kind of universal theme that everyone who lives on top as you might imagine gets all the fresh air gets all the sunlight gets all of the the high society that comes along with it and then everybody who lives down below lives in all the garbage and the muck the underlings the underlings and it's interesting to note just to kind of bring this a little bit full circle back to Leonardo da Vinci that he had conceptualized the idea of a city like this hundreds of years before anyone else ever introduced it to science fiction. His idea of a model city was essentially a a city built upon a city and that you would have the lower part be uh, a series of channels that would be for trade and for navigation around the city. And then you would have a sewer system devised that would all be hydraulic that would move around the waste and clear it all away long before the concept and idea of a modern sewer ever existed. And then above that would be these large open roads that would lead into gardens and and upper class posh homes and things of that nature. And it was very much this idea that high society lived high up and that low society lived underneath Taking in the dark metaphor and literally just putting it directly That's into effect. That's very interesting. Well, yeah. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because when we're talking about dystopian societies and we're talking about robots and we're talking about cities where these the high class live in these towers, we have to talk about Metropolis. Oh, Oh, yes. What an amazing movie. Fritz Lang, brilliant filmmaker. My God, some amazing shots in this movie. Was made, this movie was made in 1927, right on the cusp between silent movies and talkies in the Weimar Republic. And let me just share with you the first paragraph of the plot description uh, from Wikipedia. Set in the year 2026, Metropolis takes place in the dystopian city where wealthy intellectuals rule from vast tower complexes, oppressing the workers who live in the depths below them. The film follows Frieder, the son of a master of the city, John Friederson. While idling away in his leisure time in a pleasure garden, Frieder encounters a young woman named Maria who has brought a group of workers' children to see the privileged lifestyle led by the rich. Maria and the children are quickly ushered away, but Frieder is fascinated by Maria and descends into the workers' city in an attempt to find her, thus moving the plot forward. Maria is also the basis for the robot that is constructed later on in the film. Now, obviously, both of you being the theater nuts that you are and the film nuts that you are, you, you've seen it in its entirety, I take it, right? I actually, believe it or not, have not seen oh, the movie. Oh, it is so amazing. And they remastered it. They remade it just a few short years ago. They did. They did. The original, well, first off, the original version, the 1927 version, in its full uncut level that in Germany was lost. Yeah. And it was, it was over two and a half hours long. It was 153 minutes long. Yeah. They got very close, though. They got to 148 minutes in 2010, and they also they redid the score. So it right. sounds perfectly crisp and clean. There is a version that's available on Netflix streaming right now. 
Yeah. I know there is. It's on my instant cue. I just haven't had Yeah, the, me too. It's one of those things where it's just like, I need a whole night to watch yeah. this movie. Okay, friends, your homework for tomorrow right? is to watch this amazing movie. Absolutely. When it was originally shown, it had this amazing, you know, that original orchestral component along with it. It was kind of funny because here there are these these humans, mm-hmm. <laughs> very real human beings there in yeah. front of you who are playing the music for this silent film to give it life and, and give it a soul. And it's so much about the soullessness of the future. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I would really like to see it yeah. in a theater presented in such a fashion to, to have that real connection. To to take a quick tangent into film, the way that you see that that was illustrated was 100% common of silent films of that Absolutely. era. Oh, yeah. To have live music done in mm-hmm. the theater because they didn't know how to put soundtrack in right at that point. So, right. Um, I just appreciate the irony of it all. The irony. But yeah. just, I would just love the experience because you're watching it the way they were watching it 80 years ago almost 90 years ago 85 years ago isn't that amazing though when we think about that when we think about a silent film having so many of those components that we see in modern science fiction today i've i've done that i've actually went went to a a six hour long silent movie where it was played with a full orchestra you watched it was the one of napoleon right napoleon yeah when it was um in oakland and it was an absolutely amazing experience six hours yeah and there was longest silent film yeah yeah there were there were three intermissions oh my goodness yeah Wow, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it was fantastic, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> <laughs> like one every hour and a half, basically, they were doing. Yeah. 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 Wow. Crazy. Very crazy. Um, but this was a big movie because it really set the template for a lot of how you illustrate the future on film. On film, absolutely. Right? Film was this new medium, which is in itself was kind of this magic, right? It was yeah. so well, much so that even magicians were the ones who were using it at first to stage their magic acts. The movie... Um, God, why am I drawing a blank on it? The mechanical boy that, that, that's in it. Why am I drawing a blank? Uh, Hugo. Hugo. Oh. Hugo. Yeah. Scorsese, that was a love letter to the dawn of early silent film because mm-hmm. Ben Kingsley's character is the magician who used to make a bunch of silent movies and used his knowledge of, of illusion to create these really cool single shot stories that, she would, that he would tell. Pre-movies, these perceptions of the future that were being displayed were being displayed via text and, and you were having to kind of take the author's word and, and construct it in your own head and the mastery of description that you can read in, in some of the early sci-fi literature. Um, some of the st- a lot of the stuff that steampunk's based off of H.G. Yeah. Wells with Jules War of the Worlds and uh, the Time Machine. Mm-hmm. Time Machine, right. I, I also think of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, mostly just because of the submarine. That, well, yeah. that's Jules Verne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Who I love, Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. I really do. I thought 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea still is such an amazing story. And Journey to the Center of the Earth, too. I mean, both of those, which have been just be run, retold in such horrible ways on film, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. really can never do them justice. Yeah. Uh, but they really don't need to. Because like you were saying, it was us who were going ahead and creating this idea. Mm-hmm. And it infused so much of who you were as the reader and who you still are as the reader, you know, reading us and, and with as much influence as you have with modern technology yeah. today. Even still putting yourself back in those shoes, back in that time. Oh, so much of who you are comes out as part of that. And that's the whole point. I, and I find it really interesting still that even with all of the different images we've been shown, we still sort of sometimes we either have – I feel like it gets split up into two two different perceptions. We have dystopia, like we screwed everything up, or we have the Jetsons. like i feel like it really does kind of get get split up in these in these two different ways like um you know everything's like kind of off and eerie or things are like you know really snazzy and clean and you know actually there's a very interesting theory on a very popular comedy website that i like to cite all the time crack.com uh there's a a popular theory on there that uh the jetsons is actually a dystopia that they i was going to say that there isn't there could be very easily argued that It, it is it's because they're they're all living above a certain line because they've decimated the earth <laughs> yeah and there's no like plant life or anything there's no oxygen down there anymore so they just not went only that but they've the... gotten fat and lazy they have sidewalks yeah. that move for them mm-hmm. which yep. we have at airports but we don't have one just cities now and yeah. they have robots and they have machines that make their dinner and it's, mm-hmm. it's actually a very it's, sad future it's like wally yeah yeah oh yeah it's, it's a lot just like wally. like wally oh i love that movie it's such a good movie oh my god and its concept and idea of the future is such a, a fresh and kind of unique retelling of something that is very similar in a lot of yeah. other stories but it it's so good so poignant and so topical and I, I think the thing i love about that movie is that even though there is this 
tremendous weight to the implications of our actions, there is that little to get a little corny here, the little seed of hope, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, it's so very corny. Literally. Literally. <laughs> corny, indeed. Yeah. 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 And I love that the closing credit sequence where you see the robots oh, so and good. the human beings growing plant life together. You yeah. Know? yeah. And then they slowly become less fat all the time. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and they redeem themselves and they right. create a, a pretty neat and very hopeful future. And that, that subplot where it's the one woman whose chair breaks so she has to start walking and she finds someone else whose chair breaks and they start walking around. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, what have I been, I've been missing out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there is always this sense of what we do now affects then. And the funny thing about perceptions of the, the future is that they are perceptions. They are completely relative to the context in which they're being developed. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, when you watch Back to the Future 2. And he goes to the future and it's cafe eighties and there's Jaws being shown in 3D, like because that's the big movie, you know? And the clothing is retractable as well. Yeah, the, yeah. the clothing looks essentially like an 80s wet dream. <laughs> really, let's be fair. Really, yeah. And I know it was just pure product placement, but I have always just desired and wanted the little uh dehydrated Pizza Hut pizzas. Oh, right. You just put them in the oven, totally. and suddenly they're they're just they're perfect. Like in five <laughs> seconds, yeah. And he gets fired via like several fax machines, <laughs> like <laughs> like really. And video conferencing. And now most, pe- but like most people though, like most kids don't know what the hell a fax machine is. It's <laughs> like we don't use those anymore. Yeah, they would have been emailed, right? Right. Yeah. You know, here's what bugs me about the perceptions of the future. The one disappointment we have: we still do not have a flying car. That's a lie. We do have prototypes of flying cars. We have a working flying car. Yeah, I, I didn't say that. But what but I mean we is don't we don't have a mass manufactured flying car that we can That's what buy. I mean. We have not adopted the flying car. Let me, Very let, well, me sir. let me recant that statement. And for perfectly good reason, because for whatever reason, those folks who came up with this concept and idea of the flying car assumed that everyone could drive really well on the road at that time, so they then moved to the skies. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> I don't want people flying around. I really don't. I'm a little nervous about certain pilots that are flying around right now, okay? I don't really want to see we don't the need average cars motorist dropping from the sky. Yeah. Okay, Not but if idea. we get to the point where we have cars that can drive for us, which we do have, Google made one. True. Other companies which, have made one. I think let that become a little bit more popular first. Let self driven cars take off, let that technology get settled in. Because you take to the skies, there's no roads, there's no lines. Because hey, they're gonna be going wherever the hell. Because where we're going. We don't, don't need, need roads. roads. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my God. <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> but let's also be clear that the cars that we see in these in these futures, many of them are not flying. They're not using flight to move They're around, hovering, right? They're, They're hovering. hovering, exactly, which is a heck of a lot safer. Unless we're talking the Jetsons. They're, they're straight up flying. Mm, I don't see a whole lot of lift going on because they stop mid-air and just kind of bounce and hover for a little bit and then they slowly but descend there's assuming down. There's some apparatus in this vehicle. It's a, I think it's a little dongle at the bottom of it that's just like, <laughs> it's probably some super powerful magnet right. just repelling all the right, lot. Right, those little, those little waves that come out of it. Nobody knows exactly what, what that is. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But I'll say that I, I would feel more comfortable people hovering around than I would with them flying around. Flight is a really tricky thing yeah. and people should not be involved in it unless they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Hovering... I could probably hover. And, you know, if you're hovering, you, you figure you have some sort of apparatus in place that keeps you from hovering out of control, right? So just like we have lanes on a highway that allow us to go smoothly in one direction, okay. I'm assuming in the future we would have something that would allow us to hover safely yeah. in one direction. Hover cones. Like, and then how much, will you, how much will you hover? Like, what's the point then? Well, I think the idea around the flying car was that we had taken up so much space down on mm-hmm. the ground that we now had no room at all to actually drive around. I'm so gonna, now we had to fly around. I'm going to argue if you're over 20 feet in the air, you're, you're flying. <laughs> That's flying, but all right? <laughs> most hover technology is no more than a foot off the yeah, ground, yeah. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. So Let's no, face it, folks. We're not there yet. We're I'm not sorry. There yet. But for all the movies that portrayed us as being there by now, and, or many years before this, we just ain't there. I'll tell you, when I was working as a technician, I, was, I, I used to do live events and shows and stuff. What I would kill to have a pair of hover boots instead of having to go up in a lift to go focus lights and stuff like that. I would have killed to have some hover boots. That would have been rad. So now that we've gotten there, can I talk about Tomorrowland? 
Yes. But but first, can I talk oh, about yeah. uh, Star Trek Five? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who have seen Star Trek Five, it was an awful movie. It really was not in line with what Star Trek should the have been. Frontier. The final frontier, supposedly. Yeah, I think this was the one I missed. This is, this yeah, is one, this is one that most people. This miss. is the one where they, it's the Klingon peace treaty, basically, right? Or no, that's that's Star Trek Six. That's Star Trek. Oh, so this is the one where they find God. This is the one where they find God, and it's a very exactly. interesting and the look on Sarah's face right now is yeah. priceless. And you know what? I'm I'm pretty confident that it was Bill Shatner who was directing this movie. I, I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it was Bill How Shatner. How dare you question the Shat? I know, and you know what, Shatner, if you're listening, I love you still. I will always love you. You have a special place in my heart. But even you know that this was really a very bad choice. We did download your app. That's we true. We did download the app. Which is so amazing. Chateauetry. Chateauetry. And if you listen back to the Nerds on Film Star Trek episode, I talked about loving your nipples. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going <laughs> slightly off topic from where I wanted to go with this, which was the flying boots that they had in the movie, which was the, oh, the only boots? really redeeming part where Spock, McCoy, and Kirk go on a camping trip to Yosemite. And here's Kirk trying to climb El Capitan. He is climbing, you know, just barehanded up there without any safety equipment or anything. Right. Of course, Spock being Spock, right? He's, he's always keeping an ever-close eye on Jim. And uh, he's got his hover boots on. As soon as Kirk slips and falls off the precipice, then... Spock slowly hovers up and saves the day and is able to, to oh save him. Oh, my God. And, of course, the funniest part is that Bones is just down there talking to himself with this pair of binoculars, like, freaking out <laughs> over what he's doing. But later they come back for another plot device. And mm-hmm. you know what? It's worth it to go see the boots in action. So so see it just for the boots. Okay. But I'll see if I can just YouTube that one scene. <laughs> it's very funny. And those boots were awesome. And I, yeah. Yeah. They, they deserve a place in, in our future. That's so interesting. Yeah, I just, I love the fact how how sci-fi fantasy picked apart what could potentially be the future. And I feel like Gene Roddenberry's future is such a a hopeful one, right? Mm -hmm. It's got a mixture of everything, right? It's got some problems that we were facing at that time in the 60s when it was first made. And of course, there are different players that are the roles of them, right? The Klingons and the Romulans and all the other Star Trek antagonists, right? Right. Um, But at the same time, it is still a very hopeful future for us as Mm -hmm. a human species, because here we are, we overcame horrible war that almost killed off everybody, but then we all came back together and we met the Vulcans and then everything was fine. And a lot of the technology, though, that was kind of created for that science fiction, for that genre, Mm -hmm. has evolved and become what it is today. We were talking about the iPad earlier, right? And we're talking about how my first idea of the iPad actually came from Star Trek and and seeing them use the pads that they had and what have you. That was very much what I wanted to be able to carry around and have this pretty much encyclopedia at my fingertips that could do anything for me. Right. And it's kind of evolved to that in all the different types of tablets that are Mm -hmm. out there, like your Kindle, like my iPad or whatever. The communicator, obviously the modern cell phone, thought of not only as the communicator, but also like the tricorder, right? Sure. There's all these different apps that tie into all sorts of different weather stations and mm-hmm. stuff like that that give you uh, information on the weather, which the tricorder was always doing. You know, Captain, we have this terrible plasma storm coming in. We got to go. Um, <laughs> or even there's there's third party devices that are being you know designed for these things that are lo- you know measuring electromagnetic fields. Uh, they're helping doctors to you know take the vital signs of their patients, mm-hmm. and these are all coming from our phones. Yeah. You know, that's wild. Here's here's, this tiny little device that can do it all. Here's what's crazy. The phone that is in my pocket right now is more powerful than the 15-inch iMac that I got when I graduated high school nine years ago. That's so crazy. With the the exception of the fact that it cannot burn CDs and DVDs. Ah, who needs to do that anymore? Right. Right. There's no need for it. Exactly. Aside from that small detail... Is more powerful than that device was. The majority of graphing calculators that are out there right now are considerably more powerful than the computers that took man to the moon. Yeah, yeah, that's Which pretty makes amazing. Makes you wonder why we yeah. haven't done more. <laughs> I mean, can I go on the specs of what the iPhone five is capable of right now, just so we can just say it real quick? Is that cool? Why not? Uh, Sarah just gave him a wince, so maybe that's not. Okay, go for it. Okay, so. In your hands, you're holding a device because Eric and I both have iPhone fives, so you know we'll just we'll just I say I have an it. iPhone 4s. 4s. So she's pretty close. The A6 processor is a 2.0 gigahertz dual core processor, and it's got one gig of RAM. That's crazy to that's think. That's crazy. Yeah. That that's that's in your cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. So, pretty wild. It's pretty so wild. it's just so completely impressive how far we've come. Although, again, there's still a certain element of how much is too much. Which I, I think is something that I've, me personally, has always been something I've thought about. 
I'm a relatively low maintenance, simple kind of person. I like to keep my life pretty low key and pretty streamlined. And, and the fact that I even own a Kindle Fire, the fact that I had, you know, an Android smartphone, now I'm on an iPhone 4S, like this is huge for me. Like I was, I was always like, I don't need that stuff. I just don't need it. And now I'm like, Hey, wave of the future. And it, but to a certain extent, there's still elements of things that frighten me that are of the future. Google's smart ads that they have, um, where they can basically just, where they can basically, they track your browsing. They know exactly what you're into. Totally reminds me of Minority Report when they do a retinal scan and then all of a sudden all the advertisements and billboards around you start tailoring towards you. That's so completely freaky. Then again, also from Minority Report, he's got the gloves where he can just kind of like swipe images in and out in midair. And, and that technology freaking exists yeah. already. With the Connect. And there's a, there's an app for your Mac you can get. Flapper, I think is what That's it's called. That's crazy. They're developing this little laser keyboard that attaches, I'm pretty sure, to iPads or iPhones. and It already it, exists. Oh, is it? Okay, it's it the projects, one that projects onto it, the it table. It projects yeah. a keyboard and it knows yeah. your finger movements. Yeah. That's just, it's so bonkers. What is available out there? It's, and again... How much is too much? When is it when is it violating human privacy rights, et cetera? Facebook's always in a fight about that. Yeah. Well, I, I would actually turn the question around slightly and I would say put yourself in the perspective of somebody who lived a hundred years ago mm-hmm. who would be looking at us now and looking at the technology that we have and looking at social media, for example, on its most basic level, like Twitter mm-hmm. or Facebook or what have you. And what they would say. And I think if I could just stretch my imagination for a minute, I think they would probably say almost the exact same thing that you did. Yeah. I think they'd be so terrified and afraid of the idea of what we're doing now. Maybe that's just natural for us. Maybe that's just human nature is to kind of be a little bit wary of those things that could happen in the future so that we really stop and think about what we're doing and make good choices. I would go as far as to say not even 180 years ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. The internet didn't even exist 20 years ago. Well, it did, but yeah. it wasn't Well, it, it didn't exist like it did today. Right. It wasn't the internet of today. But my father, or even just myself, let me just talk about myself for a moment. I mean, I, I remember when I sent my first email. You know, I remember when I logged into the computer for the first time and really went online and started surfing the web, and that became like a term. Like, that was like new when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of mind-boggling to me to think how far we've gone in just like the past 30 years, for example. Yeah. And I guess it kind of begs the question. So you're 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 very concerned about the violation of privacy. It kind of sounds like just certain things of of losing touch of essential things of humanity. I it really drives me crazy to see people in grocery stores with their kids in the cart playing. The kids are playing on the iPhone or the smartphone or whatever on some sort of electronic device. Okay. And then mom's like not really paying attention because she's got her Bluetooth in here and she's having a conversation. And I'm like, these are moments that you are missing with your child. Like these, yeah. when I'm going about my day-to-day business, um, as far as running errands, et cetera, et cetera, I never have my my earphones in because I'm trying to experience the world around me. Yeah. I'm a parent of two small children. Mm-hmm. Anyone who listens to the podcast kind of knows that. And I'm totally guilty of being that parent who gave their kid an iPad for that moment so that I could occupy myself with something else. I'll throw myself out there. I'm totally guilty of it. And I think a lot of us are. And I don't think it's anything that we ever really intend to do. I think it's something that kind of pops up and happens. Might I make a counter argument? Yeah. Finish your point. But I have a counter argument. Okay. I was just going to say that, you know, I agree with you and that relying on the iPad or relying on whatever device you have or even relying on the television because, you know, before there was the iPad, it was sitting the kids down in front of the TV, right? Same thing. is something that, as a parent, I try to keep myself in check in, not always successfully, but I try. And I try to make sure that I am definitely spending that quality time. I'm not trying to judge. Oh, you I are totally swear. not judging. You're you're just you're making an observation yeah. on yeah. on an aspect of our society today, which I totally align with. Let, let let me color this a little bit more. I don't see it as much different as giving your kid a toy to play with to get them out of your hair for a little bit. What I do see though, as a valid point, is that the parents are checking out. They're putting the earbuds into their ears and they're just tuning out from the universe to listen to music. Now, it's cool that, hey, we have stereo headphones. You can really get involved in music, but there's a time and a place for that, right? Is it in the grocery store? Probably not. Yeah. You right. know? If going for a walk, sure, maybe. You know, you can experience the nature and do it to some sort of rhythm. But no, it's it's always this shades of gray, you know, that, that, yeah. that we're living in. And, and that's the thing, though. Like, it's this is just for me. Sure, sure. Everybody, else, everybody needs to determine what is what is too much for them. Obviously, like, some people don't watch TV. 
I, however, love television. You take it away from me, I'll kill you. <laughs> for, for me, if I ever have kids, I know that I want them to embrace technology, but I want to be part of it with them. I want to, right. I want to be there with them as they're experiencing it and learning it and not using it as a tool, at least not at first, <laughs> to <laughs> just get them out of my hair, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. once they know it, then, of course, they're just going to gravitate toward it. Yeah. Well, I want to change up the pace a little bit. And, you know, I, I kind of get where your concerns are of the future and where that's going. Brian, I kind of want to ask you, what what worries you the most about the possible future outcomes of what, what could become? Well, the privacy issue is is one that I think definitely is a concern. There's this whole debate now about privacy. Like, do, should, do we even need to have a right to privacy anymore? I, I've even heard people very close to me say, well, you should have nothing to hide in the first place. And just like, well, you know what? Some things are meant to be private, you know? Yeah, they said that with the Patriot Act. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Right, right. That's a whole other episode. And I'm pretty sure they said that in other totalitarian regimes. And that's that's a very scary thought, Yeah, I think. You know, everybody deserves their own personal space. And that space is being constantly reevaluated. Right. I'm not going to reiterate what you guys have already said because you guys already hit those points pretty well, I think. I think for me, it comes into... Are we actually improving the quality of life is what is my concern. We've got these really cool thermostats now that can auto-detect when the room needs to be cooler or warmer based on just on the atmosphere around us. Very simple devices. That improves the quality of life. Does a television where you can gesture? In a way, it does. You know, if you can gesture to change the channel, sure, but you're also not getting up anymore, right? Right. Is it increasing your life expectancy at that point? Right. And I'm not trying to go on a diatribe about saying technology is bad because clearly – If you see what's around us, I don't think technology is bad in the least. But I think there needs to be an equilibrium that the scale is can be very dangerously tipped toward uh, laziness, for lack of a better word. And we need to have that that hybrid of where the quality of life is being maintained as well as being enhanced and enriched by the technology. And I'm more concerned about how this is going to apply to major problems that we're going to have in 10 or 20 years, as far as food production is going to be going, as far as the environment is going to be going. Sorry, you got me going on a, on a roll that would could be an entirely other podcast, a part two. Well, if I can piggyback off of you a little bit, I feel like my big concern, my big fear is definitely environmental. The very real fact that we have a population in this world that is spiraling out of control, that we are growing further and further beyond our means to support ourselves is really... Very terrifying. Just for a data point here, in 1850, when we started pumping oil, the global population was 1 billion people. And this year, we hit 7 billion people. Good God. In yeah. 160 years. Yeah. 162 and that, years. And that, that, to me, is probably the most terrifying idea, is the, yeah. the fact that we are, we're growing so exponentially that we're not, we're outgrowing our planet. And it's kind of scary, because we're going to start running out of food, and famine is going to be a very, very serious right. problem. Famine's and, already a problem in certain parts of the world, and drinking water is a huge issue. Yeah, the amount of fresh water on this planet is yeah. tiny. And there are creative solutions that are being made for this. There are drinking straws that remove the impurities that are bringing. People are trying to come up with the idea of vertical farming, taking old skyscrapers that are not being used and turning each level into a farm for some of some kind mm-hmm. yeah. for growing produce. And that one of these towers can feed fifty thousand people. Yeah. In 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 so that which is like several neighborhoods, you know, at the very least on in a major city. So we're coming up with solutions to the problem, but but what do we do when we go beyond those solutions? Because we're growing so fast. What happens then? I have so much I want to add to I know. things. Okay, so real quick, Brian, just to, on your point, yeah. as far as improving the quality of life and technology, it just it completely reminds me of Brave New World where in order to improve the quality of life, they were keeping people on drugs. People were on happy pills. Yeah, and I don't mean – and unfortunately, I didn't mean to take this in a very morose turn because it is – No, it, but it's that, true. Yeah, but I don't want us to be a podcast where we don't at least acknowledge that there is a problem because that's right. part of oh, no, finding absolutely. the solution. Yeah. Well, we're a history podcast and our future is based on the present and it's based on the past and it's this is our foundation for the future, yes. right? So we're, we're commenting on, on what we know and what the world around us is now because – yeah. It will become the future. Well, and essentially this is a living history of what's happening now. Absolutely. There is the old saying, right? If we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Right. Right. And what I will say is that there is hope. There is absolutely hope because we have – let me go take it back for a second because that thought came and it just went out of my head for how to compose it. Sarah, you were going to say something, I think. Again, I have have so much I want to say to what you you were both saying. 
My mom always refers to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire mm. when, oh, when yeah. she comes to talking about the United States. And it's not that my mom does not, you know, obviously believe in our country, et cetera. My mom's, um, my mom's just very aware. Brilliant woman. I, God, I love my mom. <laughs> she's fantastic. Um, and she came into town today. I'm really excited. But she's always uh, referencing the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And she's saying that the people were watching the circuses while Rome was burning. And it's always the metaphor that she uses. And it's, we are heavily saturated in entertainment. I mean, even I just said it, I'm like, you take away my TV, I'll kill you. Yeah. You know, you take away our, you know, we are hooked on entertainment. Entertainment is our our way of life, entertainment and consumerism. Yeah. And and this is why these are things that I feel like we need to really reevaluate. You know, environmental issues, um, Eric, you were were saying is is a big concern for you. I feel like to to a certain extent, and, and this is, you know, me being very hyperbolic, with every new piece of technology, I feel like sometimes we take a step back from nature or what is more natural right. to us. And subsequently, um, there's actually been studies that have proven that just as a whole, the human race is actually becoming slightly less intelligent with the passing of time because we become less reliant on our natural brain power, our natural instincts, our, our natural way of, of developing the things around us as far as, you know, survival and being able to think on our feet as much because yeah. we're relying more on technology. I, I would I would ever so slightly this argue is, that no, this point. This is totally arguable. Yeah. I'm just saying these, this is a study that I, I just sure. you know, recently heard. I would just say because of the internet and because the fact that now a child who lives 2,000 miles away from me can learn something more or, mm-hmm. you know, six, let's say 6,000 miles away from me on the whole other side of the planet can learn something about my way of life in a few seconds by going online and accessing, uh, you know, an article or downloading a book onto their device so they can read it on there. You know, I, I would I would argue it in the sense that, yes, maybe we're becoming a little too reliant on all of those things. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the fact that it's there. Yeah. And the fact that it's so easily accessible means that we have so much more knowledge at our disposal, at our fingertips, yes. um, that that actually gives me a lot more hope because I feel like that is really going to allow us to to grow Right. And, and I think that's what we're saying as on the scale of at least intelligence, not in saying how much you know, but how you can use your brain to cl- critically apply that. Yeah. And I think the thing that's really, really important to, to focus on hope for a moment is that what history has shown us is that we have survived. Yeah. Right. Nothing has destroyed us completely. You know, unfortunately, Rome did collapse economically. They did not collapse militarily. Yeah. The, the weakened economy is what made them susceptible to uh, invasion. And I don't mean to scare any Americans out there right now, but, you know, yeah, it, had, it, it happened once. Yeah. Okay? My, seriously, this is what my mom is saying all the time. She's like, look at Rome. Look at us. Yeah. But so, you know what? Rome fell Perhaps Rome fell for a reason. Yeah. Perhaps that's our history. Yeah. They had such a strong sense of history and a, such, uh, a strong sense of recording that, that yeah. it has survived to us in great detail. And maybe this is what we need to uh, to save us. Yeah, it's true. But at the same time, the media has also done good jobs of showing stories of what could happen yeah. as a reminder of saying, hey, let's not do this. Oh, and the yeah. many authors that we've talked about this evening as well. Exactly. Uh, I have to make one quick point because i got to throw it out there because it's the other thing that I'm really worried about and I feel like we need to, as a world, get behind, not just as a country, space flight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke had a vision of the, of the world in 2001, and he based it off of his idea as a futurist. He really was. He was a futurist, right? He looked at what was available to him in the now, the trends that were being set, and he looked at the past, and he looked at the growth that we had gone through, and he said to himself, in 2001, we will be so dependent on spaceflight that it will become a tourism industry, and it will allow us to explore the world around us in a, in a very different way, outside of our world, outside to other worlds, and it will open up all sorts of unknown possibilities to us. That's because he was writing this right in the middle of the space race, right when we were motivated to get to the moon and not just as a country, but as a world, mm-hmm. we all were behind this. You know, from that generation, there's not a single person that you're going to ask who's not going to say, yes, I remember when man first stepped foot on the moon. So what happened? You know, we got there, we did it, and then all of the enthusiasm for it fell away. And if we had kept the enthusiasm going, if we had kept the momentum going. You know what the problem was? Everybody was on quaaludes. 
the 70s, man. People are just like, yeah, yeah. cool. Been there, done that. Moving on. But Disco's awesome. <laughs> Disco is the fall of the, of the, of the American Space Pogue program. <laughs> yeah. Damn um, you, Bee Gees. <laughs> I think we might have found our title. No. Um, I, I just, I'll just close on this because I, I don't want to get into a great big topic about this. We could go on and on and on for this. Absolutely. But I would say that there is just so much potential beyond our atmosphere, yeah. beyond our gravitational pull. There's so much out there in our solar system to explore and to learn. And you know what? If you're all for commercialism, they're great. Let's get the tourism industry up into space. If you are all into materialism, great. Let's go mine some asteroids for, you, for alloys and materials. Sector, the private sector is so huge on space travel right now. The guy who owns Tesla is a space pioneer at this point. Yeah. This and whole SpaceX program, the fact mm -hmm. that we're restocking the International Space Station with these new uh, Dragon capsules that they're developing – we're okay. We're starting to move back in the right place, but we, as a world, have to get behind you know what this. It is? Yeah. Give it thirty years, because it took thirty years after the Great Depression. Give it another thirty years. I hate to say it. Maybe it'll happen in fifteen, because things are moving exponentially faster. But right now, people don't want to sink money into space travel right now because they want to fix the problems at home. Yeah, I, and I and I understand yeah. that, and I respect that. But at the same time, I feel like if if the world had something to get I'm behind not I like agree, that, but that's what it is. Well. I agree with it to a point, I, I would say. But I'd say if we as a world had something to get behind like that and, mm -hmm. and bring back that enthusiasm that we saw when, what, what got yeah. us to the moon, I think it would be such a unifying force. And not to go all Gene Roddenberry here, like it's going to bring all the world together and all war is going to end. But I really feel like it would be something so beneficial for us. Right. I want to go to Europa. Yeah, but there is a bigger <laughs> point you're getting at, which is when the human race does band together, when they do get behind something, we do truly miraculous things. Yeah. You know, we never thought we were going to, at one point, we never thought we were ever going to leave this planet because we thought it was the center of the universe, right? Look at what we've done. Yeah. We have a probe on Mars. Several. One of several. <laughs> one of several. We're looking to go there in the next 20 years or so. If we get everybody behind that, can you imagine? Can you just imagine? It's 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 mind-blowing. Yeah. And our perceptions to the future is what drives us to want to band together and attempt the impossible. Well, yeah, because we're screwing this planet over, so we need to get the <laughs> F off. <laughs> Guys, what an amazing discussion. This oh my bad. god, we could seriously go on for this about for hours. This could hours. be easily a three-hour episode. <laughs> it, it's such a loaded topic, and I really want to invite our loyal listeners who are out there who have been, as we pointed out in the beginning of the show, so vocal. Please participate in this conversation. I know we're all going to have some really amazing opinions. We're all going to probably have some differing opinions as well. So go ahead and put those out there on our Facebook page. Join in that discussion. Join in that conversation. Tweet um, us, too. Please. Tweet us. Email us. Uh, you can reach me at thebrickmont at nerdonomy.com. You can reach me at brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at nerdonomy.com. And you can reach me at sarah at nerdonomy.com. That's S-A-R-A-H. And I uh, want to just encourage everybody to check out Nerds on Film if you haven't done so already. We're a really fun podcast. Brian's there. It's me, Brian, and David. And we just have a really good time. We yeah. really do. And and we're just, it's almost like hanging out with your friends talking about movies. So, And if you had a chance to listen to our Thanksgiving episode already, but you haven't had a chance to listen to part two, which is on the Nerds on Film, Eric's so there, hilarious. It's okay. Eric's there. <laughs> he can ease you into it. It's, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. We, we really, we have a blast doing that podcast. It's too. so much fun. And of course, please, we are on both Stitcher Radio and on the iTunes store. So if you haven't subscribed to us, subscribe to us and give us a review. We would love to hear what you have to say about the content of our show. And um, have you already talked about buying a t-shirt yet? Because uh, we got some pretty awesome t-shirts on that. We do have some awesome t-shirts. On nerdonomy.com. Mm -hmm. I, I would say so, yes. In fact, uh, the Abacus One t-shirt right now <laughs> is got to be hands down my favorite. Um, That's a good one. And I got to say, yes, please go out there. And uh, if you want to support us, it's a great way to show your support. I still think that my favorite one is the safe word is Akbar. But you really <laughs> need it. You need to listen to Nerds on Film to get that one. Yeah. Guys, as usual, don't take our word for it. Go to a library, read one of Jules Verne's classic novels, uh, read H.G. Wells. Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury, of course, Fahrenheit 451. And the two of you, what movie are you going to go see? Metropolis. Metropolis. Thank you. It's on my instant queue. <laughs> it has I'll been sitting it. there for a while. I can't believe that you guys are the film nerds, and I'm the only one at the table who's seen it all I've the way through. Seen, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I've seen parts of it. I haven't seen it all the way through. I'm yeah. sorry. I just got to say, just point that out. It's okay. It's okay. All right. Shame. We've been shamed. <laughs> we've, we've been shamed. Publicly shamed. 
Alrighty, so. folks. Well, Brian, thank you. Sarah, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're and so amazing. We love having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me back. I love being here. Thank you and good night. Good night.